Section 59 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 46. Louis Fourteenth and Home Administration, Part 4. The king felt his loss, but did not regret the minister whose tyranny and violence were beginning to be oppressive to him. He felt himself to be more than ever master in the presence of the young or inexperienced men to whom he henceforth entrusted his affairs. Louvois's son, Barbezieux, had the reversion of the war department. Pontchartrain, who had been controller of finance ever since the retirement of Le Pelletier, had been appointed to the navy in 1690, at the death of Seignelay. Quote, Monsieur de Pontchartrain had begged the king not to give him the navy, says Danjou ingenuously, because he knew nothing at all about it, but the king's will was absolute that he should take it. He now has all that M. de Colbert had, except the buildments. What mattered the inexperience of ministers? The king thought that he alone sufficed for all. God had left it to time to undeceive the all-powerful monarch. He alone held out amidst the ruins. After the fathers, the sons were falling around him. Seignelay had followed Colbert to the tomb. Louvois was dead after Michael Le Tellier. Barbezieux died in his turn in 1701. Quote, this secretary of state had naturally good wits, lively and ready conception, and great mastery of details in which his father had trained him early, writes the Marquis of Argenson. He had been spoiled in youth by everybody but his father. He was obliged to put himself at the mercy of his officials, but he always kept up his position over them, for the son of M. de Louvois, their creator, so to speak, could not fail to inspire them with respect, veneration, and even attachment. Louis the Fourteenth, who knew the defects of M. de Barbezieux, complained to him and sometimes rated him in private, but he left him his place, because he felt the importance of preserving in the administration of war the spirit and the principles of Louvois. Quote, Take him for all in all, says Saint-Simon, he had the making of a great minister in him, but wonderfully dangerous, the best and most useful friend in the world so long as he was one, and the most terrible, the most inveterate, the most implacable and naturally ferocious enemy he was a man who would not brook opposition in anything and whose audacity was extreme a worthy son of louvois as devoted to pleasure as he was zealous in business he was carried off in five days at the age of thirty-three the king who had just put chamillard into the place of pontchartrain made chancellor at the death of boucherat gave him the war department in succession to barbezieux quote, thus loading such weak shoulders with two burdens of which either was sufficient to break down the strongest Louis the Fourteenth had been faithfully and mightily served by Colbert and Louvois. He had felt confidence in them, though he had never had any liking for them personally. Their striking merits, the independence of their character, which peeped out in spite of affected expressions of submission and deference, the spirited opposition of the one and the passionate outbursts of the other, often hurt the master's pride, and always made him uncomfortable. Colbert had preceded him in the government, and Louvois, whom he believed himself to have trained, had surpassed him in knowledge of affairs as well as aptitude for work. Chamillard was the first, the only one of his ministers whom the king had ever loved. Quote, his capacity was nil, says Saint-Simon, who had very friendly feelings towards Chamillard, and he believed that he knew everything and of every sort. This was the more pitiable in that it had got into his head with his promotions, and was less presumption than stupidity, and still less vanity, of which he had none. The joke is that the mainspring of the king's great affection for him was this very incapacity. He confessed it to the king at every step, and the king was delighted to direct and instruct him, in such sort that he grew jealous for his success, as if it were his own, and made every excuse for him. 
The king loved Chamillard, the court bore with him because he was easy and good-natured, but the affairs of the state were imperiled in his hands. Pontchartrain had already had recourse to the most objectionable proceedings in order to obtain money. The mental resources of Colbert himself had failed in presence of financial embarrassments and increasing estimates. It is said that during the war with Holland, Louvois induced the king to contract a loan. The premier president, Lamoignon, supported the measure, quote, you are triumphant, said Colbert, who had vigorously opposed it. You think you have done the deed of a good man. What? Did not I know as well as you that the king could get money by borrowing? But I was careful not to say so, and so the borrowing road is opened. What means will remain henceforth of checking the king in his expenditure? After the loans, taxes will be wanted to pay them, and if the loans have no limit, the taxes will have none either. At the king's death, the loans amounted to more than two milliards and a half. The deficit was getting worse and worse every day. There was no more money to be had, and the income from property went on diminishing. Quote, I have only some dirty acres which are turning to stones instead of being bred, wrote Madame de Sévigny. Trade was languishing. The manufactures founded by Colbert were dropping away one after another. The revocation of the Edict of Nantes and the emigration of Protestants had drained France of the most industrious and most skilful workmen. Many of the reformers had carried away a great deal of capital. The roads everywhere neglected were becoming impracticable. Quote, the tradesmen are obliged to put four horses instead of two to their wagons, said a letter to Barbezieux from the superintendent of Flanders, which has completely ruined the traffic. The administration of the provinces was no longer under supervision. Quote, Formerly, says Villard, the inspectors would pass whole winters on the frontiers. Now they are good for nothing but to take the height and measure of the men and send a fine list to the court. End quote. The soldiers were without victuals, the officers were not paid, the abuses but lately put down by the strong hand of Colbert and Louvois were cropping up again in all directions. The king at last determined to listen to the general cry and dismiss Chamillard. Quote, the dukes of Beauvilliers and Chevreuse were entrusted with this unpleasant commission, as well as with the king's assurance of his affection and esteem for Chamillard, and with the announcement of the marks thereof he intended to bestow upon him they entered chamillard's presence with such an air of consternation as may be easily imagined they having always been very good friends of his by their manner the unhappy minister saw at once that there was something extraordinary and without giving them time to speak what is the matter gentlemen he said with a calm and serene countenance if what you have to say concerns me only you can speak out i have been prepared a long while for anything they could scarcely tell what brought them chamillard heard them without changing a muscle and with the same air and tone with which he had put his first question he answered the king is master, I have done my best to serve him, I hope another may do it more to his satisfaction and more successfully. It is much to be able to count upon his kindness and to receive so many marks of it. Then he asked whether he might write to him, and whether they would do him the favour of taking charge of his letter. He wrote the king, with the same coolness, a page and a half of thanks and regards, which he read out to them at once, just as he had at once written it in their presence. He handed it to the two dukes, together with the memorandum which the king had asked him for in the morning, and which he had just finished, sent word orally to his wife to come after him to l'Etang, whither he was going, without telling her why, sorted out his papers, and gave up his keys to be handed to his successor. All this was done without the slightest excitement, without a sigh, a regret, a reproach, a complaint escaping him. He went down his staircase, got into his carriage, and started off to l'Etang, alone with his son, just as if nothing had happened to him, without anybody's knowing anything about it at Versailles until long afterwards. Memoire de Saint-Simon, page 233. Desmarais in the finance and Voisin in the war department, both superintendents of finance, the former a nephew of Colbert's, and initiated into business by his uncle, both of them capable and assiduous, succumbed, like their predecessors, beneath the weight of the burdens which were overwhelming and ruining France. Quote, 
I know the state of my finances, Louis XIV had said to Desmarais. I do not ask you to do impossibilities. If you succeed, you will render me a great service. If you are not successful, I shall not hold you to blame for circumstances. Desmarais succeeded better than could have been expected without being able to rehabilitate the finances of the state. Pontchartrain had exhausted the resource of creating new offices. Quote, Every time your majesty creates a new post, a fool is found to buy it, he had said to the king. Desmarais had recourse to the bankers, and the king seconded him by the gracious favour with which he received at Versailles the greatest of the collectors, or traitants, Samuel Bernard. Quote, by this means everything was provided for up to the time of the general peace, says M. d'Argenson. France kept up the contest to the end. When the Treaty of Utrecht was signed, the fleet was ruined and destroyed, the trade diminished by two-thirds, the colonies lost or devastated by the war, the destitution in the country so frightful that orders had to be given to sow seeds in the fields, the exportation of grain was forbidden on pain of death, meanwhile the peasantry were reduced to browse upon the grass in the roads and to tear the bark off the trees and eat it. Thirty years had rolled by since the death of Colbert, twenty-two since that of Louvois, Everything was going to perdition simultaneously. Reverses in war and distress at home were uniting to overwhelm the aged king, alone upstanding amidst so many dead and so much ruin. Quote, Fifty years' sway and glory had inspired Louis the Fourteenth with the presumptuous belief that he could not only choose his ministers well, but also instruct them and teach them their craft, says M. d'Argenson. His mistake was to think that the title of king supplied all the endowments of nature or experience. He was no financier, no soldier, no administrator, yet he would everywhere and always remain supreme master. He had believed that it was he who governed with Colbert and Louvois. Those two great ministers had scarcely been equal to the task imposed upon them by war and peace, by armies, buildments, and royal extravagance. Their successors gave way thereunder, and illusions vanished. The king's hand was powerless to sustain the weight of affairs becoming more and more disastrous. The gloom that pervaded the later years of Louis XIV's reign veiled from his people's eyes the splendor of that reign which had so long been brilliant and prosperous, though always lying heavy on the nation, even when they forgot their sufferings in the intoxication of glory and success. It is the misfortune of men, even of the greatest, to fall short of their destiny. Louis XIV had wanted to exceed his, and to bear a burden too heavy for human shoulders arbiter for a while of the affairs of all europe ever absolute master in his own dominions he bent at last beneath the load that was borne without flinching by princes less powerful less fortunate less adored but sustained by the strong institutions of free countries william the third had not to serve him a conde a turenne a colbert a louvois he had governed from afar his own country and he had always remained a foreigner in the kingdom which had called him to the throne but despite the dislikes the bitternesses the fierce contests of parties he had strengthened the foundations of parliamentary government in england and maintained freedom in holland whilst the ancient monarchy of france which reached under louis the fourteenth the pinnacle of glory and power was slowly but surely going down to perdition beneath the internal and secret malady of absolute power without limit and without restraint End of section fifty nine and of chapter forty six